Welcome to QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live 2022. It's all about the discussion and the interchange. We need experts like you showing up at this meeting. You can register now. Today's QD Clinic is about steroid weaning. I went through this a few times in clinic today and yesterday. I think I need to review it again. You put someone on steroids, they feel great. Uh, it is the greatest and the worst drug we have in rheumatology, according to Dr. Peter Merkel. Uh, I always say steroids are acutely wonderful, chronically dangerous. Today, I saw my patient's eyes pop and said, you continue to take that five or 10 milligrams a day for the rest of your life, you're going to get fat, fatter, fattest. You're going to get diabetics, diabetes, high blood pressure, stretch marks, cataracts, blindness, weak bones, fractures common infections, bizarro infections, life-threatening infections, um, stomach ulcers, muscle weakness, um, bruising, um, skin fragility, thin hair, hair loss. I mean, the, and you know, halfway through, her eyes are popping saying, oh, well, I don't want to be on this stuff. So you need to say that up front because it makes weaning steroids easier after they've had three weeks or three months of benefiting from steroids. It's gigantically important to be upfront about the dangers of steroids with every patient you put on steroids, no matter what dose, no matter how short. Um, rule number one is you don't need to wean steroids in people who are on steroids for less than six weeks, meaning you haven't yet screwed up their HPA axis enough, their hypothalamic pituitary axis enough with chronic steroids, hence you can stop abruptly and there isn't going to be a prolonged problem with withdrawal and withdrawal symptoms. And yeah, patients need to know that this is steroid withdrawal when you're taking away the steroids after they've been on them chronically or you're weaning them down, they feel lousy. They think it's the original disease for which they got the steroids. And you need to distinguish between those two and be certain it's not the original disease and it is steroid withdrawal, which is aches and pains not swelling, which is more fatigue, more not feeling right, more, a little bit of nausea, but they don't vomit. Um, and their labs show disease well-controlled. There are other parameters, whatever disease you're looking at, whether it's myositis, lupus, or rheumatoid arthritis, or GCA, there are other parameters show no activity of their disease. So I like to go from 60 to 40 right quick. After you've been on 60 for a month, I've instituted DMARD steroid sparing therapy. As soon as I can, I take them down to 40. It's exceptional that you don't need to. And usually those are people who need 60 milligrams or higher prednisone equivalents, often in split dose because they have such active disease, which is seldom the case and mainly only the case in something like lupus with alveolar hemorrhage, lupus cerebritis, Dill's disease, bad life-threatening, organ-threatening vasculitis. Other than that, they don't need to be on those doses for a long period of time, all right? So 60 to 40 right quick. And then I've got a goal. It's three months. How are you going to get there? And my usual role is make changes every two to three weeks. Try to make big changes up front, meaning when they're at 60, you can go to 40. When they're at 40, you can go to 30. When they're at 30, you might need to go to 25, or when they're at 20 or 25, you need to go down by five milligrams. So I drop by 20, 10, and then five 
every two to three weeks until I get to a dose where usually it's going to be 12 weeks down the line, uh, 10 weeks down the line, and you're going to have them on that dose. And there you're going to go even slower, right? You can go by one milligram every week until they're off. The patients who are impossible to get off steroids, this is what I do. They're at five milligrams. I make them go from five milligrams to four milligrams, but I make them seesaw between five milligrams and four milligrams every other day for 10 days. And when they notice no difference between the five and four milligram dose days, then they're good to stay on four and they stay there for a week or two, usually two. And then you do it all over again, lather, rinse and repeat. So then you go to four and three every other day, alternating for 10 days. And then they stay at three for two weeks. You keep going till you get them off. Again, you have to let them know the hazards, dangers, the misery of chronic steroid use. You know who I see most damage and, and consequences of steroids are, in my opinion, myositis patients. I don't think we pay enough attention to them. I've seen AVN with myositis with as little as eight weeks of high-dose steroid therapy. Um, less likely to see that with even the elderly on high-dose steroids or even lupus, but I worry about the myositis patients. So again, you got to be really aggressive in steroid weaning. If you've got another plan that you like to use, and by the way, not everybody needs to go down by that one milligram from five milligrams down. Sometimes if they've only been on steroids for three months or so, you can probably go from five to 2.5 and then off. Some can go from right down to five and off. But, you know, some people need some hand-holding and coaching. You got to write this stuff out on a piece of paper and give them the schedule or give them a calendar and show them what days they need to make the changes on. Otherwise, left to their own, they're going to chronically continue to make, take steroids because steroids make everyone feel good, which is not really the goal, is it? Anyway, that's it for this QD clinic. Um, go to roomnow.live and register today. We'll talk tomorrow with another QD clinic. Take care. Welcome to QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live 2022. Let's talk science, technology, education, and patients. Step. These are our versions of TED Talks. We've got several of them during the meeting. They're really cool. Short talks given by great speakers. One's called The Music of Rheumatology. The other one's called The Death of Caravaggio. And another one's called uh, How Stopping Drugs to Protect the Fetus Leads to Greater Harm. All great speakers. Those are our step talks, TED Talks, that's going to happen throughout Room Now Live. Go to roomnow.live to register. Today, we're going to talk about the CSF and lupus cerebritis, lupus psychosis. It's now better called neuropsychiatric lupus by all the experts. The case is a case of a um, a 25-year-old woman who just got out of the hospital, was diagnosed two years ago with lupus, had a prolonged hospitalization for um, a number of medical problems. Um, interestingly, though, no lung, no heart, no um, renal involvement. She had some mentation problems, and since that hospitalization has not been the same. 
meaning when she's gone back to school, um, she's in college, it's been noted that she's having problems keeping up memorying, remembering and, and whatnot. So now she's going for, you know, cognitive testing. And the question is, is it, could that be neuropsychiatric lupus? She's now stable, right? She has no evidence, serologic or clinical evidence of active lupus. She's on medicines, including immunosuppressive and modest doses of steroids right now. Um, she's on hydroxychloroquine. Question is, could she have cerebritis? So do you have to have really um, uh, big evidence of active lupus to confirm or suspect lupus cerebritis? No, you don't. That can happen irrespective of other markers of lupus activity, although in general, it tends to be a little bit more common. But we, any of us who've seen a lot of lupus certainly have seen patients with psychosis and, um, and many of the manifestations of lupus cerebritis um, in the face of what looks like otherwise well-controlled um, disease on usual medicine. The real problem here is the diagnosis. How do you make the diagnosis? First off, you have to suspect it. It is estimated that about 50 to 55% of patients with lupus, systemic lupus, will have neuropsychiatric manifestations and presentations throughout their disease course. So that's important. We worry about seizures and psychosis. And interestingly, those are really quite rare um, in the grand scheme of things and that ways that lupus presents. We had a tweet on that just a, last week. I think it was in the you know, like point something percent, that was really quite low um, when you look at a large cohort of lupus patients over a long period of time. Same can be said for seizures. Um, it's often, you know, the case of cognitive dysfunction or sometimes more focal disease and whatnot. The diagnosis is made by what? Number one, considering it. Number two, um, uh, doing imaging. What do you do? Is there a, a test that you should do for imaging? Is there one that's better? Um, it turns out imaging is largely done to exclude other diagnoses. I've often said the following, that if a lupus patient is admitted to the hospital, they're usually going to be admitted to the hospital for a medical problem, not for a lupus problem. So meaning lupus patient with chest pain, MI, lupus patient with chest pain and shortness of breath, you know, PE, which may or may not be related to lupus, or pneumonia, which is probably not related to lupus. Now, it could be related to the medicines they're on, sure. So immunosuppressives and steroids bring into play other medical problems. But it's not going to be a lupus problem. That's different, however, in the case of a neuropsychiatric admission for the lupus patient. There, it's always going to be more likely neuropsychiatric disease from lupus than it is going to be from comorbidities like CNS infection, you know, the effects of uremia, the metabolic effects that are going on in that patient based on their disease or their drugs or whatever. Um, so again, you need to exclude these other causes. One of the main things that you're going to do is imaging. The second thing you're going to do, and again, there's not one that's any better than other. You can't truly diagnose vasculitis on an MRI. You can see bright signal, what they call UBOs, unidentified bright objects, usually around the ventricles and whatnot. But that's usually due to some edema or gliosis and is not truly representative of vasculitis. We don't know. And again, there is no vasculitis in, uh, in a lupus cerebritis brain. There's no vasculitis. It's a bland vasculopathy, right? So you can't diagnose vasculitis as the MR guys often like to do. If you think it's vasculitis, do an angiogram or an MRA and you won't find vasculitis. So, but you will see bright objects 
and you will see some signal um, that's sort of meaningless. You might find evidence of stroke, small, large, whatever in the past. Um, but you're looking for other causes, you know, things that lead to, um, you know, shifts and pressure and, uh, and, and that sort of thing. Um, you're not going to do any better with a better scan other than a CAT or an MR. So PETs and specs are, are not indicated here and not proven to be valid, valuable. EEGs are useful in finding, um, you know, uh, seizure activity that may have, uh, may go undiagnosed and they should be considered in people with altered mental status and or suspected seizures. CSF testing is where it gets dicey. So the percentage of patients who have a um, pleocytosis in the CSF is substantially small, right? So 20, 30, 40%. And you're expecting to see a lymphocytic pleocytosis. Um, a neutrophilic pleocytosis is indicative of either drug effect or infection and not cerebritis. A lymphocytic pleocytosis, and it doesn't need to be a lot. It could be four cells, six cells, 12 cells. It's not gonna be hundreds of cells. Secondly, you look at protein and glucose, you can get very low glucose levels, but there you should think of TB and infection. You can get abnormal protein levels, but that's horribly nonspecific. And for that reason, you need to do CSF testing, asking for both albumin and IgG levels on the CSF and simultaneously on the serum. And with that, you can calculate one, the Q albumin, a poor man's measure for blood brain barrier intactness. And two, the IgG index, the IgG synthetic rate, the IgG loc, these are measures of, is there more IgG being produced within the CSF than in the blood, suggesting more in situ immune activity within the brain space. For first, let's talk about Q albumin and BBB. There are recent studies talking about the blood-brain barrier in lupus being intact. In general, it is with only about a third to 40% of patients will have a slightly elevated BBB abnormality. And the normal number there is your serum albumin, what is it, your, your CSF albumin times a thousand divided by your serum albumin. And the number is usually less than nine, which means that you have a normal intact blood-brain barrier. One third to 40% of lupus patients will have a slightly elevated nine to 15. And that's not a major problem, but it's still abnormal. That's in keeping with lupus. When it's 20, 30, 40, 50, you now have disruption of blood-brain barrier, vascular events, and infection are the two primary causes for a, a Q albumin of 100 or 90 or 60, right? Now, if the Q album is normal, then you can just look at the IgG index. And if it's elevated, that means there's in situ production that indicates immune activity in the brain. And that can be supportive and found in 50 to 60% of patients with cerebritis. But if the blood-brain barrier is abnormal, the IgG index is no longer applicable. That simple calculation, which is the serum, uh, the, the CSF, IgG over albumin divided by the serum IgG over albumin, all with the units normalized, hard to do a calculation. Um, you can find a website that can do it for you. Uh, and, and again, if it's elevated, it's not valid if the blood-brain barrier is elevated. There you have to do the either the synthetic rate or actually better something called IgG loc. Some people like to do 
IgM indices as opposed to IgG. I think they're equally well, but I think IgG is ease, more easily done in most people. Are there other tests you should do? Antineuronal antibodies, I don't do them. I don't find them useful. Um, looking for immune complexes in the brain, I've read about them. I don't find them to be useful in most people and not, not worth getting. Um, they're often done. So it's looking for oligoclonal bands. That's often done the workup of MS. Um, uh, uh, the anti-ribosomal P antibodies in the CS, in the serums would make you suspect CSF disease or CNS disease like psychosis. You could also do it on the, on the CSF, look for anti-ribosomal P antibodies. That sometimes is useful and may be worth doing. I think if you're considering CNS disease and lupus, you should be doing a panel uh, that you would do for antiphospholipid sy syndrome, okay? And a complete panel. Is there any value in getting autoantibodies in the CSF? No, there is not. That's never panned out, not worth it. And that's my workup of lupus cerebritis. You know, treatment of it after you made the diagnosis is supportive treatment, high dose steroids, and then changing up their immunosuppressives, maybe getting more aggressive. There is no one thing that works for most patients. Time may be your best tool. That's it. Tune in for more QD clinics. Go to roomnow.live to register. Take care. Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. This is about better lectures. You're great. Everyone knows you're a great speaker. Great enough to be on the Room Now program. Audiences are asking for you to lecture because they know that you're excited and passionate about the content that you deliver. This is what makes you unique. This is what makes you someone who likes to give lectures. What most of the audience doesn't know is that you spend years learning the subject matter. You spend hours gnashing your teeth over the content and uh, you're gonna present and how you're gonna present it. And you're part of you know, great teaching in America. The problem is that education's changed. It's changed dramatically. The question is, are you and am I ready to make a change as well? The problem is, I think that the same old, same old that's made us effective, great teachers in the past, still only delivers, you know, that which you got before and doesn't take it to another level. And the fact is that traditional education has many shortcomings. Uh, the problem now, I think, that, that's being recognized by more people is that teachers teach but the lessons really do belong to the learners. People who are designing education now are going more for dynamic learning with active participation by the audience, mainly because you want them to learn more and have greater impact to the messages you're delivering. You know, what you need to do is maybe um, teach them just enough and leave enough on the table that they're going to have some fuel in the tank for the Q&A session, which you're going to deliver. You know, the, of course, you know the data about attention spans. Um, the attention spans on videos that I do are actually quite good, but the average attention span on most video is about two minutes. The studies on attention span with humans is just shocking. Think of the number, but the number is only recent data, 8.25 seconds, actually shorter than a goldfish. This is based on really well-designed experiments. In 1978, um, a study, studies of medical students looked at 
their attention span and said that it was sort of capped at between 10 and 15 minutes. But yet, if you ask the medical students, how, what's, how long is your attention span? They always proclaimed 60, 69, you know, uh, that they were in it and could stay in it. But that's self-reported. You know, when you look at eye movement and brain activity and diversions, it's really seconds. So it's a tremendous task to keep someone's attention to deliver not just the data, but the point that you want to make. I always like to say something I think is really true. Nobody remembers the data. Everybody remembers the story. So do I have to become a great storyteller? This is a problem. The question is, what's a good lecture? What's a bad lecture? I, I think a bad lecture is 60 minutes long, 50 minutes long. It's got 60 slides, um, has 10 key clinical trials and you know lots of data graphs and and basically ends with you or me apologizing for, gee, I wish we had more time for questions. Um, and you lost them <laughs> in the first five minutes of the lecture and lost them repeatedly throughout. So the retention of what you delivered is really, really small. Great lectures are shorter, have great clarity, and are relevant or relatable and integratable into their daily lives or practice. So it's going to be odd for me to tell you, the great speaker, that maybe you should change. I'm going to suggest that maybe you should change because it could make you into an even better speaker. Woodrow Wilson was asked to give a talk once, and he asked, um, how long do I have? And uh, he said, if I can talk as long as I want, then I can go right now. I need no preparation time at all. But if it's a half hour speech, I'm going to need a week to prepare it. And if it's a 10 minute speech, I'm gonna need two weeks to prepare it. Point being, it's a lot harder to give a shorter lecture. Room Now Live is 25 minutes, not an hour, not 50, it's 25 minutes in the last five minutes of your speak, your talk is going to be for Q&A. Um, so shorter is definitely harder. How do you go about this? I, I would say the best way is to first strive for being clear, concise and instructive. You need to outline and map out your key data, your main teaching points, um, your timing of delivery. You need to think with the end in mind and then, then script it so that along the way you can present the data in a flow-like manner, build in some stories, hit your punchlines uh, and deliver the take-home messages. Uh, I think the successful lectures from all I've read on this begin with grabbing attention. Maybe this is where you start with a story or a difficult scenario or a controversy that exists within the field. And then you deliver engaging information that's built upon in a crescendo-like fashion until you get to your main point. The problem is in the graph of their interests, you go up and up and up, but they don't plateau and stay with you. It always falls off. You need to allow for that and you need to re-engage that with your next objective and teaching point. In between, this is where you can insert one of the other requirements that we like to have at Room Now Live, which is what? A case or a polling question. These are really important. They're mental breaks and readjustments for re-engagement. The purpose of a case or a polling question is A, a status check for both you and the learner. You can figure out where the audience is on this issue, and the learner can think can see where they stand compared to their peers. The second purpose is a priming 
issue, meaning you can prime them for what you're going to present next in your presentation. Do that with a case or do that with a polling question. Well, 12% of you got this right, and here's the data that proves it, that sort of thing. And lastly, build in mental breaks. All right, who's your favorite Beatle? Or who won the 1969 World Series if it wasn't the New York Mets? Again, you want to re-engage them, and then you launch into your next objective. And when you take them on this roller coaster ride, you maintain engagement. You get higher impact to your learning. So I don't think we want to necessarily morph you in a major way, especially from being the sage on stage, as you are known. Um, maybe you can go a little bit more towards being the guide on the side. It becomes more personal. And you don't have to deliver the 60 slides. You deliver 20 slides and leave a lot of questions because a lot of questions is, means better audience engagement with you. And it's the give and take that becomes really a rich educational experience for all involved. So we want you to be the, men, the mentor, the enlightener, the instigator, the, the one who's going to teach and make that audience smarter. But if they're really engaged, then you take it to another level with a red hot Q&A session. I like that you're the great speaker, the great lecturer, but I'd rather you be and your teachings be the memorable person on the program. We'll see you at Room Now Live. This is QD Clinic. I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. QD Clinic is brought to you by Room Now Live 2022, where you integrate knowledge into practice. That is, of course, after you've attended the meeting. Today, we're going to talk about follow-up visits and when you should be seeing your patient after starting a DMART. There's a recent report that we tweeted about this week coming from Daphne Gladman's group. Data from two phase three trials in psoriatic arthritis where they looked at the use of upadacitinib, adalimumab, and placebo, uh, and looked at the time to a meaningful clinical response defined either by objective measures or patient-reported outcomes. And in that series, they noted that a meaningful, significant clinical response was achieved at 29, 30, and 53 days, depending on the measure. That's fast. The question is, how long do you need to figure out whether the patient has responded to your therapy or not? Let me tell you a quick story about the early days of tofacitinib. I was invited to a tofacitinib advisory board, my goodness, probably around 2009, 2010. And they presented data, I want to say it was on 260 patients with RA, treated for six weeks, placebo-controlled, a few doses, and I was sort of outraged. Like, they're going to show me a new drug and only show me six-week data? What are they, out of their minds? Like, who are these people? I thought these, you know, well, if you looked at the data, you would have known that they were not wrong at all because they were seeing clinical responses within two weeks, four weeks, and by six weeks, it looked like they had data as good as anything out there at the time. And this, of course, was smack dab in the middle of the TNF inhibitor heyday. And, you know, since then, 
you know, most, you know, cytokine directed or biologic uh, specific therapies um, are pretty quick in their clinical responses. This has been made even quicker by the new targeted synthetics and small molecule therapies also showing benefits really, really early. So the tradition here is you bring a patient back for follow-up based on one, you want to see how they're doing so you can make a decision, or two, for safety reasons and blood tests. Usually, it's the blood tests that determine when the next follow-up visit is. And unlike, you know, what we tell our patients, we have to wait and see what the blood tests show. No, you're doing blood tests to look at safety. Uh, so the usual sequence is patients come back in one month because there's they're unstable and there's a high risk with the medicine. Um, they come back in three months because... You're not sure how they're going to be doing. You'd like to find out. And um, and there's maybe some risk with the medicine. But if there's no risk with the medicine, the patient's doing great. You see them every six months, right? So 12-week follow-up is seem, seems to have become the standard for most patient follow-ups, especially with the initiation of new therapy, whether that be methotrexate or a JAK inhibitor or a TNF inhibitor or uh, abatacept. It seems to be that, you know, first visit three months. I think that's too long because if you look at all the data that's out there, it's very, very clear. Separation from placebo responses is highly, highly evident at week four. Absolutely clear by week six and week eight. And with most of our newer therapies, you're achieving maximal responses at week eight. And they're not going to get much better. So when do you bring them back? Well, you bring them back at week 12 because that's what we always do. Now, you might bring them back earlier if you had the availability to do so. That is a, So that means that maybe you have a nurse-led clinic and they operate according to a protocol. Or maybe you're doing telemedicine. You can see them faster that way. Or maybe they have a smartphone and you're monitoring their progress that way and you can get remote labs. The problem is that none of us have any of those things and we just bring them back in 12 weeks. So the facts are clear. People who respond rapidly and well, quickly, are the ones who have sustained early responses, the ones who achieve remission in ACR 70 numbers. You know, saying, well, I need 12 weeks or 16 weeks to see the full response. Yeah, you are seeing the tip of the, uh, the, the tail of the, of the bell curve. And those people are not going to do well in the long run. They're going to fail and switch after six months or a year. And the facts also are that rheumatologists are slow to make changes in therapy because they're based on follow-up visits. They're based on, well, let me wait and see. I'm saying it's a war. The gains that you make initially are very significant and establish the trajectory of the patient over time. So response speed is another word for trajectory. You want to find out that someone responded quickly and almost completely at four, six, or eight weeks because you're then good with that therapy. If they're not responding at six or eight weeks, bail, move on. Change therapies rapidly when you're starting new therapies, especially in a rheumatoid or psoriatic arthritis patient. 
Uh, the current convention, I think, is is nothing more than convention based on convenience and the lack of avail- available alternatives. I think we should be driven to see patients sooner. Um, so what can you do? Bring them back at six weeks instead of 12 weeks. Or bring them back at four weeks and then bring, bring them back either at eight weeks or 12 weeks after that. But again, whether it's a visit at four, six, or eight, you know right away whether what you did therapeutically is going to work or not. Uh, and again, patients who respond best quickly, meaning they have a very steep trajectory here as far as response, these are also the ones who achieve sustained drug-free remission. Think about it. See the patient earlier. We'll see you at Room Now Live.